touches the yellow ring, when she touches the yellow ring, she vanishes. Um, so again, you, I pointed out several times how he does the chronicles. He like he loves to end a chapter with what we would call today a cliffhanger. So the chapter ends with just there was no Polly. So she has vanished. Uh, here she is in Uncle Andrew's um, room, the mad scientist, the crazy uncle. She's up there with Diggory. Uh, they are investigating. They go through the wrong door. Uh, you, you know this is not going to end well. They go through the wrong door where the crazy mad scientist uncle is uh, that Letty, the ant, has been trying to protect Diggory from. Uh, he's only been able to see the crazy uncle when he comes down to eat and stuff, but uh, she won't let him go up to this room. But curiosity um, gets get him in trouble. They, they go in the room, and the mad scientist who's, who's in science, I would say, because C.S. Lewis would say it, he's not just into science, he's into scientism, the worship of science. He's into the worship of science that will sacrifice anything or anybody for the advancement of science. Uh, he wants science, his version of science, to rule and reign and have dominion over everybody. If it kills a guinea pig, if it makes Polly vanish, it's for, it's for scientific discovery and inquiry. So it's worth sacrificing. Animals and human beings for that. So yeah, there she vanishes at the end of chapter one. So chapter two is really what I want to focus on. Uh, then we can do quickly chapter three. So she's gone. Um, Diggory screams because <laughs> he's never seen anybody vanish before. So that's probably an appropriate reaction. Diggory screams. Um, look at the bottom of page because I really want you to see you know, when I first read years ago, The Magician's Nephew, I just, for whatever strange reason, I assumed the magician had to be a good guy, hero kind of person. I was halfway through the book for it. It's dawned on me, the magician's not a good guy. Um, yeah, the magician's a really, really, really bad guy. Uh, C.S. Lewis wants you to learn something about the nature of evil through the magician and Jadis. And particularly in chapter 2, as you're pre being introduced to the personality, you're going to learn something about uh, the nature of Andrew and the nature of evil. Um, look, look at the bottom of the first page in my edition, which is probably your edition, is page 19. Um, again, Diggory screamed, um, you know, normal reaction. Bottom of the page, Uncle Andrew is speaking and says, congratulate me, my dear boy. My experiment has succeeded. Again, Everything has to bow to his search for scientific knowledge and for the use of bad magic. Well, then you, you get introduced to Old Miss LaFay. Old Miss LaFay, on page 19, is his fairy godmother, Uncle Andrew's fairy godmother. Probably, he's, he's probably the last person in England with fairy blood because he had a real fairy godmother who was part fairy, part human. Now, again, you probably don't know Western literature as well as C.S. Lewis would love for you to know Western literature. Mrs. LaFay. Do you know who LaFay is in Western literature? Morgan La, L-A, Fay, capital F-A-Y. Morgan LaFay, 
um, was one of the enemies of King Arthur. You know, particularly if you're British, English, you should know the legends of King Arthur. That's basic core literature uh, in, in the English canon. Anyway, so here's the fairy godmother named Miss, Mrs. LaFay. So you know, C.S. Lewis hopes you know, as soon as you hear the name, oh, that's not going to end well either. She, she was the enemy. Morgan LaFay was the enemy. Go watch Excalibur, great old movie. Uh, Morgan LaFay was the enemy of um, one of the enemies of King Arthur. So um, Digger gets introduced to the fairy godmother and, and now Uncle Andrew. Um, and no, notice the bottom of page 19. Um, Digger says, well, what was there? Wasn't there something wrong about her, Uncle Andrew? Now, again, part of what C.S. Lewis wants you to do, he's old school. You need to learn how to use that word wrong you need to learn how to define that word wrong obviously c.s lewis is going to find the word wrong differently than uncle andrew and his fairy godmother old mrs lafay would define the word wrong again think think the culture that c.s lewis was introducing us to in the 50s a culture that doesn't even know how to define the word so here you know, innocent Diggory says, wasn't there something wrong about her, your fairy godmother who's made you this evil person that you are, Uncle Andrew? Well, said Uncle Andrew with a chuckle, it depends on what you call wrong. Oh, if C.S. Lewis could see our age today. I'm sort of glad he's dead. This is 1955. But he, he's a medieval Renaissance scholar he knows what the 20th century is looking like. Well, said Uncle Andrew with a chuckle, depends on what you call wrong. People are so narrow-minded. She certainly got very queer in later life. I'll just let that lay there. Did very unwise things. Again, you need to know how to define unwise things. You know, I'm so grateful, and I've mentioned it several times. I just happened to end up in a college as an undergraduate that was a classical college where I had to learn Aristotle, Plato, who predates Christianity. But like most of the Western world, Aristotle, Plato, they, they talked about virtue. They talked about ethics. They talked about how to, how to define the good for human beings. You know, we used to use Aristotle and then Christian faith to, to, to help create virtue. What is good? What is bad? What is light? What is darkness? What is right? What is wrong? What is wise? What is unwise? Well, C.S. Lewis, you know, living in the 20th century. By the way, it was the year before this. He gave his inaugural address at Cambridge. I love his inaugural address at Cambridge. He said to the folks at Cambridge, he says, I admit I'm a dinosaur. But what you need to do with dinosaurs is not to just discount us, not to just disregard us. You may want to study us because we're not going to be around forever. So that's what, and so meaning he was a dinosaur, he was part of another culture. He was sort of part of the pre-modern mindset where you still believe that there was a thing called right and a thing called wrong, a thing called truth, a thing called 
falsehood or whatever. Anyway, here's Uncle Andrew modeling for us the 20th century. Well, said Uncle Andrew with a chuckle, it depends on what you call wrong. People are so narrow-minded. She certainly got very queer later in life, did very unwise things. That's why they shut her up. Um, and, you know, in an asylum, do you mean? Oh, no, 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 said Uncle Andrew in a shocked voice. Nothing of that sort, only in prison. I say, what has she done? Ah, poor woman, said Uncle Andrew. She had been very unwise. There was a good many different things. We needn't go into all of that. She was always very, very, very kind to me. He's he's defining unwise as something that you get caught doing that ends up not beneficial for you. But look here. What, what has all this got to do with Polly? I'd wished you all in good time, my boy, says Uncle Andrew. C.S. Lewis wants to get the story out here. All in good time, my boy, says Uncle Andrew. They let old Mrs. LaFay out before she died. And I was one of the very few people who she would allow to see her in her last illness. She had got to dislike ordinary, ignorant people, you understand. I do myself. Well, Mrs. LaFay, Uncle Andrew, in the Christian faith, and if you've done a lot of Bible study, uh, you may know this word. In the Christian faith, we call them Gnostics. Um, there's several places in the New Testament where that word's not, well, it is kind of used in the Greek. Gnosis is knowledge. Gnosticism is the worship of knowledge or enlightenment. First John, the Gospel of John, a lot of the New Testament is fighting against the, the rise of Gnosticism. You know, where you've got Paul over here saying what Jesus Christ did, everybody can see, everybody can know, everybody can receive. It didn't take long in the Christian tradition before Gnostics rose up in the Christian church. They're the people that says, okay, what Paul did, that's, that's Christianity 101. But I'm at Christianity 2.0. I've had the secret knowledge. I've been enlightened. I know more than you know. You're, you're just barely inside the door. I, I've been enlightened. I know more. It's, it becomes, rather than salvation by faith, this is New Testament, it becomes salvation by enlightenment. Gnosis is sometimes just to find secret knowledge. You know, you got the handshake. You know the code words. You know stuff other people don't know because they're just not as smart as you are. Um. You know, there's other words for that in our culture, like the elite or whatever. But in, in biblical culture throughout most history, we call them Gnostics. They're not, we are flooded with Gnostics in this culture who know more than ordinary people who won't always tell us how to do it, who sometimes, like Uncle Andrew, will use science to help you feel how stupid you are and how they know so much more than the rest of us. Um, that, that, that Gnosticism is something Christianity has fought against since the beginning. Because human nature being what it is, we want to, to, to tier people. Tier one, tier two. And of course, we want to be in the higher tier and leave all you peons in the lower tier. So that's kind of salvation by enlightenment. That's salvation. You know, I got this image of Shirley MacLaine running on the beach shouting, I am God, I am God, I am God, because she has received the enlightenment. Yeah, this is, it's, 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 it's been very much accepted 20th century thing 
but it's been an issue throughout all of Christian history since the New Testament. There are people who think they're more enlightened than everybody else, who knows better than everybody else. The problem with that, C.S. Lewis would tell you, and the magician's nephew is, they don't think the law applies to them. They don't think about the they don't think the rules of good and bad applies to them. They don't think that the, 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 the rules of right and wrong apply to them. By the way, if you take a narcissist and make them a full-blown narcissist, right and wrong becomes what's beneficial and not beneficial to them. Think Adolf Hitler. You know, there, there's no right or wrong other than the way they define right or wrong. So that's narcissism, that's narcissism. You see the connection of the words there. Um, yeah, we've always struggled against this in, in, in human history. The people who think they just know better. So Andrew, like his fairy godmother, got to the point they didn't like ordinary people. You know, ordinary people were only good for their experiments. Ordinary people were only good for their purposes. Um, yeah, I'm dwelling here for a little while because you need to get you need to get Uncle Andrew's personality. Jadis is going to be Uncle Andrew on steroids, which you're going to see Uncle Andrew's obsession. Infatuation is the better word. Uncle Andrew's infatuation with Jadis, the wicked witch, queen. Anyway, she had got to dislike ordinary ignorant people, you understand? I do myself. But she and I were interested in the same sort of things. It was only, it was only a few days before her death that she told me to go into an old bureau in her house and open a secret drawer and bring her little box that I would find there. The, the moment I picked up that box, I could tell by the, by the pricking in my fingers that I held some great secret gnosis, Gnosticism, some great secret in my hands. She gave it, should be the word two there, she gave it to me and made me promise that as soon as she was dead, I would burn it unopened with certain ceremonies. And you are not gonna be surprised by the next sentence. That promise I did not keep. Because again, right and wrong, good and bad, becomes what's beneficial to you. So he saw the keeping of this secret box as beneficial for him. So yeah, he didn't keep his promise to his fairy godmother. And again, notice what Diggory said. Because Diggory is a picture of the old school. You're going to notice, he's going to have two major moral um, tests. And the magician's nephew. He's going to fail one but pass the other. Uh, but he's been, at least he's been trained to know right and wrong, good and bad. Which is why at this point he says to Uncle Andrew, Well, then it was jolly rotten of you to not do what your fairy godmother said. Rotten, said Uncle Andrew with a puzzled look. Oh, I see. You mean that little boys ought to keep their promises? That was what Diggory thought. But again, Uncle Andrew's enlightened. He knows better. He knows better than, you know, this law, this morality, uh, the moral law. C.S. Lewis would call it the Tao, T-A-O, the Tao, uh, spelled T-A-O. That's the kind of the law that goes, that is universal throughout humanity. Um, so, yeah, yeah uh, Diggory knows all of that, right and wrong. Uncle Andrew has, has, has progressed beyond that. You mean that little boys ought to keep their promises? Very true. Most right and proper, I'm sure. And I'm very glad you have been taught to do it. But of course you must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women and evil pe even people in general, can't 
possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. No degree, men like me who possess hidden knowledge, Gnosticism, enlightenment, are freed from common rules. Yeah, at that point, you're creating charn, which you'll see in chapter four. When you have a culture that they can't, that doesn't observe the Tao, basic moral law, right, wrong, good, bad. Um, no degree, men like me who possess hidden wisdom are freed from common rules, just as we are cut off from common pleasures. Ours, my boy, is a high and lonely destiny. As he said this, as he said this, he sighed and looked so grave and noble and mysterious that for a second, Digri really thought he was saying something rather fine. There's an attraction, particularly if you think you can get in on this level. If you can become among the profound, the enlightened, the elite, there's something attractive, but you better be careful. By the way, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful essay entitled The Inner Circle. Beware of your infatuation with being in the in-group. At some points, in the, well, like in Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis calls the in-group those people who have an obsession to control everyone else. Uh, so for a second, Derry thought he was saying something rather fine, but then he remembered the ugly look he had seen on Uncle on his uncle's face the moment before Polly had vanished. And all at once, he saw through Uncle Andrew's grand words. Again, part of what C.S. Lewis is trying to train children and you and me to do is just to pay attention. Pay attention to how ridiculous some things are that some people say. You know, like when they say misinformation instead of lie. Know what's being done to you at that point. And like, for instance, an affair instead of adultery. An affair sounds like something you put a tuxedo on and go to and have fun with. Yeah, call it adultery. It's a little different when you do that. Uh, yeah, the control of language. You know, the redefining of commonly known terms is dangerous. Um, yeah. Um, so you remember the look on Lotna's face. All it means, he said to himself, is that he thinks he can do anything he likes to get anything he wants. Okay, you got the rest of the book set, the stage. Um, yeah, um, that's why it bothered me. I was halfway through this book before I realized, no, I don't want to be like Uncle Andrew. First time I read it. You do not want to be like Uncle Andrew. We do not want to esteem people like this in civilization unless you want civilization to crumble. That's why the, the prose book that he wrote on this topic is called The Abolition of Man. If you want to destroy humanity, yeah, start making Uncle Andrew and Uncle Andrew's worldview and Uncle Andrew's way of thinking. Let that prevail. And the abolition of man will be what you get out of that. Western civilization will not stand. And that's why Charn, when you get to visit Charn next chapter or next week, you'll, you'll see what, what the outcome is of heading down this path as a civilization. Anyway, um, of course... Degree's concerned about Polly. Um, Uncle Andrew's just happy his experiment succeeded. She's gone. She's gone somewhere. 
she's in some other world. Um, so, of course, Diggory just wants to rescue her. Can she, can she come back? Well, what's the problem? Why can't she come back? She has only the yellow ring. She doesn't have the green ring. She has no green ring. A yellow ring will get you there. Green ring gets you back. She has no green ring. So what is um, Uncle Diggory's suggestion to Diggory? You need to take the rings to her. You need to take the rings to her. Uh, then you notice, um, look at the bottom of page 25. Uh, this is Diggory talking. And I suppose you've sent Polly into it then, said he, his cheeks were flaming with anger now. And all I can say, he added, even if you are my uncle, is that you have behaved like a coward, sending a girl to a place where you're afraid to go to yourself. Silence, sir, said Uncle Andrew bringing his hand down on the table. I will not be talked to like that by little dirty schoolboy. He's the elite enlightened. You don't understand. I'm the, the great scholar, the magician, the adept who is doing the experiment. Of course, I need subjects to do it on the controlling class. Bless my soul, you'll be telling me next that I ought to have asked the guinea pig's permission before I use them. I've mentioned before C.S. Lewis in the 1920s became a member of the Anti-Vivisection League. And you probably know what that is, and nobody else did in the 1920s. Vivisection was experimenting on live animals for our good. Um, now it'd be something like PETA or the Humane Society or something like that, but it's anti-vivisection league. Uh, C.S. Lewis was way ahead of his time when he said, no, that's part of God's creation. Don't torment animals for our the higher race's good. So when you see, you know, Andrew's been experimenting with guinea pigs. So this is um, C.S. Lewis's little slap at people who believe in vivisection. Um, next thing you'll be telling me is I should have asked the guinea pigs permission before I used them. Well, if you're not concerned about using human beings for your purposes, you're certainly not going to be concerned about using animals. No great wisdom can be reached without sacrifice. And again, that sounds good. But the idea, and, and that's sort of what Hitler said, if I need to sacrifice the German people, no great wisdom can be reached without the, without sacrifice. And again, who, who gets to define sacrifice? Uh, but the idea of myself going of my, of my going myself is ridiculous. It's like asking a general to fight as a common soldier. Supposing I got killed, what would become of my life's work? The world can't exist without me. And then I like Diggory. Oh, do stop jawing. It's not a term I use. I guess it's English. Or do not, oh, do stop jawing. Are you going to bring Polly back? Well, that's when he says, Uncle Andrew says, you got to take the rings, with the, including the green one, and go get her. So um, that's what he does. Because look at the very last paragraph. This is a really significant chapter. Look at the very last paragraph in chapter 2. Then he buttoned up his coat. This is Diggory. Nine years old, I think. Ten years old, that age, around that age. Then he buttoned up his coat, took a deep breath, picked up the ring, and he thought then, as he always had thought afterward too, 
that he could not decently have done anything else. Yeah, Diggory knows right and wrong. He knows what it means to be a decent human being. He knows what's light, what's darkness. He, he knows how you should see um, the law that all human beings have to, the, to bend to. He, he, he's not Andrew. He, he's been taught duty. He, he's been taught virtue. You know, he was a, in an age where he was taught virtue like you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't seek first and foremost your own selfish desires. He was taught all those virtues. Um, and again, study Aristotle and you get those too. Um, the common good, the th- way we need to act. On, you know, in our culture, um, and I guess the older I get, the less... I'm concerned about being politically correct. In our culture, we are very select of what virtues can be taught. You know, I'm glad we teach that racism is wrong. I'm glad we teach that sexism is wrong. And there may be one or two others that we talk about a lot in official settings. C.S. Lewis would say that's okay, but there's some other virtues that Western civil duty, loyalty, don't steal. Honesty. And the list goes on. What, where, where are we teaching these virtues at? you got to be careful. You're going to create a world of Uncle Andrews out there who just do what they want to do rather than what is right and decent. Uh, but, you know, if, 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 if the de- defining of right and decency is up for grabs, and some of us can always convince some of you that we know what we know better than you do. We know more than you do. We know what's right, and we'll define for you what's right, what's decency. Again, he had lived through World War II. He he had lived through was living in the midst of the rise of totalitarianism. Where the reason for totalitarianism, whether it's on the right or the left, because uh, you had both in the rise of totalitarianism in the 20th century is that we know what's best for all of you. So we create the state that tells you you have to live in the way to support what we say the state is all about. That's totalitarianism. That's the rise of a controlling class. That's the rise of an elite. That's the rise of the enlightened crowd that can tell all the rest of us common people we just have to do what we need to do for how they determine the common good. Again, if you, if you disconnect yourself from the Tao, moral law, law of nature, Ten Commandments, whatever, you disconnect yourself from the Tao, which are those laws that have been, have been held or at least esteemed, reverenced by almost all humans throughout all human history. You connect yourself from that. C.S. Lewis say, yeah, the rise of the totalitarian state is the next logical step. Again, you're going to see it in Charn, because in Charn you're going to see what, what the result of the rise of a totalitarian state is. Totalitarian states will eventually, because of a disconnect from moral law, a totalitarian state will eventually kind of collapse. Its own corruption, its own disconnect from virtue will cause it to collapse. Anyway, then chapter 3, they, they end up, he ends up in the, the, the wood between the worlds. Kind of a fascinating place. It's peaceful, it's dreamlike, it's surreal. He gets there and he finds um, Polly asleep. Um, 
They, they figure, it's, and you see all the beautiful imagery, you know, when he's going to the wood between the world after he takes hold of the yellow ring. When he, go, when he goes to the wood between the worlds, it's like he's underwater, but he's not wet. It's a beautiful image. But he ends up in this beautiful, and you see Pauline Bain's um, illustration there on page 30, 33. It's this beautiful, living, almost breathing. Trees seem to be alive peaceful, surreal, dreamlike state. But there's all these little ponds all over the place. And you learn those ponds are entrances into other worlds. Uh, this wood between the world wood between the worlds is like a way station uh, that they can take you to these other universes, these other worlds. Uh, so they're there. Um, Diggory is not quite as pragmatic and prudent as Polly, Diggory says, well, let's go explore some of these other worlds, which that's not a bad thing. You know, we want to investigate. We want to study. We want to know. We just don't want to make ourselves God of all knowledge. Um, but, yeah, let's go Let's go just check out these other worlds. And he finally talks um, Polly into doing that. Uh, they almost make the mistake of not marking the pond that they need to get back to England Eventually, they want to go back to Edwardian England, where their family and friends and their world is. So they finally realize they better mark that pond. There's lots of ponds here. They want to mark that pond so they can eventually go back. Um, by the way, you did notice at the bottom of page 34 is a little picture. You noticed a guinea pig with rings on them. Because Andrew, before he sent Polly, he sent a guinea pig to this place. Um, and he didn't feel any worse about sending Polly than he felt about sending the guinea pig to this place. So um, here they are. They make the decision um, on the bottom of page 39. Diggory was the sort of person who wants to know everything. And when he grew up, it's, he became the famous Professor Kirk who comes into the other books. You with me there on bottom, on bottom page 39? There's one of the places you see the assumption you've read the other books. You've already been introduced to the old man, Professor Kirk, who had the house in the line of the witch in the wardrobe, who had the wardrobe that the kids enter Narnia. In this book, you're going to find where the wardrobe came from, where the lamppost came from. You're going to find where Narnia comes from. You're going to find out where evil, how evil entered Narnia. Um, but yeah, here's one of those places where, yeah, you, you don't read this book first. Uh, Digger is the sort of person who wants to know everything. When he grew up, he became the famous, because you've read about him, if you've read Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, he became the famous Professor Kirk who comes into other books. So, yeah, you've read the other books. So they decide that they're going to in investigate other worlds. And uh, the way the chapter ends um, is they, they jump. One, two, three, go, said Diggory, and they jumped into a pond. Uh, with the out, holding the outer ring, you gotta, you gotta, your flesh has to touch the outer ring, or the green ring for them to work. You, the one you don't want to use, you keep in your pocket and you touch the other one. So the yellow ring is gonna get them into other worlds, and again, that's what he says. So it's loves to end chapters with a cliffhanger. So you have to remember when you start chapter four that they had just jumped, and chapter four you're gonna end up in Charn, and you know as you read Charn, and you learn about Charn. Even how the, the rulers 
as you look at the rulers, they start looking more and more cruel as it goes till you get to Jadis. Anyway, as you look at Charn, you're seeing a picture of a society that became totalitarian, that got disconnected from the Tao, moral law, good and right, and it becomes a world where Jadis gets determined. Because she finally rules uh, in, in Narnia, not Narnia, in Charn, and she gets to define good and right or bad or wrong or whatever. So yeah, you're going to be in Charn in chapter 4. So with that, so that we can finish, go back to the text. Maybe over the course of Magician's Nephew, you can commit this to memory from Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, again, as an inquiring mind, you should say, who gets to define evil? Who gets to define good? Who gets to define darkness? Who gets to define light? Who gets to define bitter? Who gets to define sweet? And by the way, if you ask Isaiah that question, or C.S. Lewis that question, I hope you know what their answer would be. God gets to define that. God, the lawgiver who creates the moral law, gets to pass these definitions. If you don't go there, if you don't have a great lawgiver above everything, your only other option is whoever gets in power gets to decide. Whether it's Nazism or Stalin and communism. And by the way, that's that's totalitarianism on the right and totalitarianism on the left. Mussolini, um, those are examples of totalitarianism both ways. If you don't let the great lawgiver, capital L, capital G, capital L, make the definitions of good and bad, then all of a sudden those definitions are up for grabs. And C.S. Lewis would say, I know how Charn, the city of Charn, ends. When those rulers, and you're going to see them in Charn, the look of the rulers changes over time. You may have had good rulers to begin with who knew they were not the ultimate lawmaker. But by the time you get to the end, you get to Jadis. And you're going to see that Jadis is Uncle Andrew on steroids, which is it's funny. There's a lot of humor in this book. You're going to see Andrew's infatuation, stupid infatuation with Jadis. Because Jadis is, as you, some of you probably know already because you're reading, Jadis gets sucked in to Edwardian England. Not a good thing. That's how the lamppost goes from Edwardian England to Narnia. Not a good thing when, when Jadis gets sucked in to Edwardian England. But anyway, this is important stuff. You know, I understand why in some school systems you can't teach C.S. Lewis, but I hope you're teaching this stuff. Teach Aristotle. Aristotle lived 300 years before Jesus. Somehow teach um, basic ethics, morality, virtue, what Western civilization has agreed on. You know, there was no way I was getting out of my college without having read and studied Aristotle's Ethics. That's the title of the, one of his books. We had to study Aristotle's Ethics so that we had the tools to define good, bad, happiness. Yeah, but now we've got a culture that the definition of happiness is up for grabs. 
it gets front. You cannot do Western civilization that way, which we knew that. By the way, and this is the story for another day. C.S. Lewis dates it into the 1830s, 1840s, I'll tell you. Any of you are, are any of you fans of Jane Austen? I hope I got some fans of Jane Austen in the room. That was the last gasp and breath of literature that was written to teach morality as the common way to do literature. Now, you always had French stuff. But that's why C.S. Lewis says um, that's when cha- after after that the industrial revolutions in full blown other things are happening in the 19th century. After that, literature takes a hard shift, and there's lots of literature that's not written to teach values. But yeah, you know, think about Jane Austen. Uh, that's why I'll admit to you, I've read Jane Austen. I respect Jane Austen. I love Jane Austen. I find Jane Austen very boring. Because it's just about living a good moral life and who you should marry and who you shouldn't marry and what a marriage looks like. And yeah, I, I'm a product. We're a product of this culture. Yeah, we need a little more excitement. Don't give us just literature that teaches us to be good human beings. Well, that's why C.S. Lewis says it didn't happen in the Enlightenment, it didn't happen in the Reformation. He says those were myths as saying things changed dramatically there. He, he literally says, after, after, in the 1830s, from the 1830s into 40s and 50s and 60s, and then you do get World War I, World War II, that's when things started changing. You know, I don't think authors now even think that they should produce literature to inculcate virtue. I don't think, we don't even, I'm not even sure we think we should have schools and teach children for the purpose of inculcating virtue. I think we teach children to have schools so they can get a good job and make a lot of money. Not opposed to that. But what is the purpose of education? Again, when he when he does the series Ablation of Man, he's reacting to a school book he saw printed. So that's why he's saying, what is the purpose of education? Is it to make good, decent human beings according to the definition of the moral law. What's the purpose of education? I mean, I'm, again, I, I'm so grateful for my undergraduate. It was, a, I mean, those people, when I went there, I just thought they were stuck in the Middle Ages. Uh, literally, there was a monastery that ran the school, and they were stuck in the Middle Ages. They prayed just like they prayed in the 6th century and hadn't, hadn't seen a reason to change. I didn't realize what was going on worldview-wise. I was being taught classic, and I'm glad to see there is a rise of kind of classic education now. There are schools that say we are a classic educational school. I'm, I'm grateful. Aristotle, Aristotle has something to offer. You know, I, Western civilization has something to offer. What is the purpose of education? What is the definition of happiness? What is right? What is wrong? What is light? What is... You either let the great lawgiver define those or it's going to be, again, eventually Frederick Nietzsche starts writing. And Frederick Nietzsche, in nihilism at the end of the 19th century, he talks about the Superman, the Uberman. And he, he's in favor of it, by the way. The person with the power gets to make all those definitions. The people with the power make all those definitions. 
that didn't end well for the 20th century. Of course, the Nazis loved to read Friedrich Nietzsche because that was the undergirding for their way of doing morality or their undergirding for the way of being able to define morality. I mean, C.S. Lewis, if he were alive today, and there are people, by the way, writing about this stuff all the time. I wish more. Um, one of the most famous ones now that I'm just learning, getting to learn is um, Jordan Peterson. I learned about it in the Bean Coffee Shop. He's hot. He's big. He's. We had um, Bonnie went to. Did you go see Jordan Peterson? Somebody in this church went to see Jordan Peterson when he was in um, Chapel Hill. Go Google Jordan Peterson. You can get a lot of. He, he was a psychologist out of Canada. I don't think he knew he was saying stuff so radical. The radical stuff he was saying is he's going to bat for classic morality, classic moral decision-making. He is hot now. His books are selling in the millions. He's all over YouTube. What I love to watch him do is when he debates someone, he rips them to pieces. I think C.S. Lewis did the same thing on the campus of Oxford. He rips them to pieces. So there are people, I may bring you a bibliography. There are people who are writing in a C.S. Lewis fashion today to say, we got to pay attention to the big pictures or we're going to be charn. We're going to be a defunct, destroyed civilization. On that happy note, let's pray together. Um, God, we pray that you will save us from all the evil magicians who seek to control us and to, to control the world by their definition of what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. We are grateful, God, that we know you, the great lawgiver. And we pray, God, that we will allow you to sit in judgment on us and we repent of trying to sit in judgment on you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.